Episode number 19, Michael Laird. All right, cut the edge of stage. Great. All right, color frost. Check. One, two, three. Check. Stand by, please. Touch to half. Touch out. Letting cues one through ten. And welcome back to The Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. And I am your host, yes, Michael Cruz. And you may have noticed there at the beginning of this podcast, we have new intro and extra music. I'm super excited. I uh, commissioned Vern Good, sound designer here in Toronto. Um, designs all over the place. Uh, Stratford Festival, uh, all most of the theatres in Toronto she's worked at. She's great. She has written uh, custom, uh, unique and a wonderful theme for the show. Uh, it also includes a voiceover by by uh, lighting designer Gabriel Cropley, so uh, props to him for recording that over the weekend. And uh, I'd like to thank Vern Good. This is uh, really exciting to have this kind of new custom theme. So goodbye, um, see you at the lights, and hello, new theme by Vern Good. Uh, that leads us into the next uh thing I want to chat about just before we start our um, episode or my conversation with Michael Laird. Um, that is the Patreon account. Yes, uh, the Title Block Podcast now has a Patreon account that you can go to and support us with. Uh, you can become a patron for just a couple bucks. That's all I'm asking for. Uh, really, it's just to support um, the uh, production of the podcast, uh, including um, bringing high-quality interviews with the designers that you love um, and maybe the ones you don't. Hmm, I'll let you decide. Um, and things like special content, like panel recordings and special interviews from around Canada, not just in Toronto. It is a, a bit of a uh, hike for me to go other places. And I really do want to do these things on location. I can do things by Skype. I spoke with Alan Stitchbury there in the fall of 2014 on Skype, and that was great. Uh, but it's not quite high quality. It certainly isn't archival quality, and I really want to get a good interview with uh, these important theater designers. So the idea is to travel to locations, including hopefully Vancouver at some point next year to chat with uh, uh, you know critical theater designers like um, uh, Michael Whitfield, um, and other people like that out in uh, Vancouver. So go to patreon.com forward slash the title block podcast and click on that old uh, patron button up there and give us a couple bucks a month. Uh, this will also allow me to prioritize more episodes a month. Right now I get about one out every month. That's about all I can do with a full-time job and some advocacy work that I do. So um, click on that button and I'll be able to get more than one out uh, a month. Uh, the goal there is to get about 250 per podcast episode. I'll add more goals as my travel uh, plans uh, firm up, uh, but that's the one I want to hit uh, right now. So make sure to share that with your friends and, uh, and support the podcast. What else? Yes, this week I am speaking with Michael Laird. Now I know in the last podcast I told you guys I'd be doing, I'd be releasing my conversation with uh, uh, William Schmuck, the head of design down at the Shaw Festival. But I wanted to get a sound designer in on the Title Block podcast. We haven't done this before, and it's mostly begin uh, been because I uh, am. I don't know anything about sound design. Now, I know some things I've operated, and I know architecture somehow. I, I've missed the entire digital revolution. I you know, can still uh, edit on reel-to-reel, uh, -reel if you rem remember what that is. But um, I got Michael Laird on 
we're going to talk about what is sound uh, sound design, what he does as a musical theater live reinforcement sound designer as opposed to a uh, sort of composer sound designer. And we talk about the difference there uh, and the breakdown of the staff and how he approaches things. Uh, it's a really great interview. I'm really excited to, to have this as an intro to sound design. And what this will do is allow me to talk to other sound designers and have a, a, a actually um, informed conversation with them. So, wow, that's a lot of stuff. New music, Patreon account, Michael Laird is coming up. Uh, make sure to check the show notes for some links in there. I added stuff about the wall of sound uh, and links to Myers Sim School, so you'll be able to check out uh, the history of that. Uh, coming up, I'm super excited. This month, I actually interviewed uh, Fina McDonald from Rabbit's Choice last month, so uh, she'll come after William Schmuck, probably. Uh, and then this month, I'm trying to set up an interview with... Um, uh, Howard Ungerlater, who's the designer for Rush, to talk about their most recent tour. So uh, I really want to get these things out to you. Make sure to go to Patreon. And here is my conversation with Michael Laird. Michael Laird, welcome to the title block. Uh, Michael Laird is a sound designer based in Toronto. And we're going to talk about his life and career today and his process. Um, first of all, Michael, tell me about the... Uh, your origin story, as it were. Where did you start? Where did you make the decision to uh, to go into sound design and or theater? Uh, it was a very, uh, it was a series of fortuitous events. Uh, I was working, I went to uh, a career college to do some training in studio work for sound. And uh, just around the time when the, the large studios were starting to downsize. And so there wasn't any work. And I got a job at uh, at a bar. As bar back, and I was carrying cases of beer and and uh, cleaning glasses and all that stuff. And uh, I happened to be in the office one day when the owner was on the phone firing their sound man. And so I said, uh, you know, can I have his job? And he said, yes, but you still have to clear tables. <laughs> and so for my first few weeks on the job, I'd mix the bands, and in between sets, we'd do the changeovers. I'd go clear all the glasses, make sure the beer was in the fridge, and mix the next band. Uh, and after about two or three weeks of doing that, I said to the boss, I said, I don't want to clear tables anymore. And he said, you don't have to clear tables anymore. So I was doing that for a few years, and uh, a friend of mine at the time uh, was a performer, and she said, you should think about doing sound for theater. And I really hadn't had any exposure um, to to much theater, and... Uh, and so she introduced me to a sound designer, Richard Farron. And uh, I applied uh, with him to, to do a grant through Theatre Ontario, the professional theatre training program, and was fortunate enough to, to get uh, funded to, to work with him for a six-month period of time. And uh, I got to work with uh, Soul Pepper Theatre, um, with uh, Data Camera and uh, Daniel McIver, and Daniel Brooks, and uh, and basically got a, a pretty intense crash course in uh, in theater composition and theater design. And I was very uh, fortunate that that parlayed into my first gig on the road, which was taking one of Daniel McIver's shows to New York City, and uh, and so that was all in the span of a year. And so I it was really uh, quite quite impactful, and. Uh, Shortly after that, I, I got asked to design for free a small musical uh, called Evil Dead the Musical, which we did in the back room at the Transact Club. And our opening night was the, uh, the Eastern Seaboard Blackout. And so we didn't have any tickets sold. And uh, 
So when the power went out and we realized that it wasn't going to be coming back on anytime soon, there was a bunch of people that had driven up from New York that were hardcore Evil Dead fans and they were, were egging us on as to, you know, saying, come on, the show must go on, blah, blah, blah. And so we got thinking and we were like, ah, we kind of maybe take apart a bit of the set and move it to the lawn of the Transact Club. And the electricians were like, well, all our DeWalt flashlights are charged up. We could kind of use those, you know, get in the trees maybe a little bit. And I was like, oh, I've got an acoustic guitar and a little drum set at home and a battery-powered keyboard and amp. We could maybe get that. And so we did. We put it all together, and we ended up doing the show on the lawn of the Transact Club. And it was it attracted a giant crowd and got written about in every newspaper. As, and we got written about in Time Magazine as to one of the things that happened in this blackout. And so suddenly we had all this press, and our run was sold out. And so that uh, Transact run quickly uh, parlayed into a run at the Just for Last Festival in Montreal and then to a run off-Broadway in New York uh, in 2006. And through the course of that, uh, I was exposed to how to design and, and mix properly for, for musical theater. So that opened up um, the avenue that is, is now the current, the mainstay of my career which is to do sound reinforcement for musical theater. Did they talk to you about uh, composing for theater when you did your, did your original training? First of all, where did you go to school? Uh, I went to Trevis Institute, and oh, I right. did, uh, did a one-year career college program with them um, on studio basics. So we did recording. Uh, we looked at a bit of post-production work for film. Um, it was very general um, sound uh, knowledge uh, on equipment, basic equipment like, you know, equalizers, compressors, and, and all that sort of stuff. It had uh, zero uh, live sound component. There's very minimal live sound training. So uh, the crux of what I do is, is, is live sound reinforcement, which has all been through on-the-job learning and uh, through mentorship uh, opportunities. And, uh, and I've been very fortunate to, to have found those opportunities and have people that have been generous enough to, uh, to teach me a thing or two. Do those um, training programs exist to do live reinforcement? It seems to me that I don't remember, whenever I've seen anybody who's worked live, it's all just been through School of Hard Knocks. They get hired and work their way up, you know, from a tech to a monitor guide to the front of the house kind of thing. And there's no, all those, all the Trebus type uh, schools tend to concentrate on recording only, right? Yeah, that's that's correct. And even even the theater schools, I've I've, I've done a little bit of teaching, coaching um, over the years at uh, Ryerson University and at National Theater School in Montreal. And uh, the the area of sound reinforcement, where we're designing sound systems, we're figuring out where loudspeakers need to go, uh, how to cover the audience equally, and all that sort of business. Um, it's it's very specific work, and uh, and there really aren't a lot of training programs that focus on on doing that work really anywhere um a lot of it is is learned on the job uh you know sound people who are younger may start working for say a supply shop and get opportunities to be out on gigs and you know have you know mixing uh smaller bands or moving to larger bands and monitors in front of house and all that business but uh it's there's a bit of a a hand-me-down knowledge sort of aspect to to learning to do this type of work. Uh, 
there are training opportunities available. Uh, there are major manufacturers who, who have um, pretty well uh, implemented training programs. Uh, Meyer Sound, for instance, is, is, uh, has a very strong educational uh, program. And uh, I've done a, a lot of training with Meyer Sound, uh, with Bob McCarthy and Steve Bush. And, uh, and so if you take, for example, someone like Bob McCarthy, who is one of the people who really figured out in, in our industry, how loudspeakers actually operate, what happens when you try and use more than one loudspeaker in a space, how do they interact and how do we make them uh, work together so that we can achieve the result that we want. This stuff is things he figured out in the seventies and the eighties. So it's, it's relatively recent knowledge and, we can still be learning it from the person who actually developed it. Like that's, it, it's that much of a sort of linear path to the people who have, who have really uh, pioneered our modern uh, sound system design techniques. Mm -hmm. Would you say that um, it sounds like sound is probably one of the youngest um, disciplines in the theater. So stuff was live for so many years and acoustics, well, I guess acoustics was uh, was something that was considered back to the Greeks, but live reinforcement actually amplified sound is something that's really quite new, like newer than lighting, certainly newer than, you know, scenography, certainly. Um, just as a little diversion, I wrote, an, I wrote an article. I read an article today about the wall of sound. Ah, uh, yes, the Grateful, the Grateful Dead. Dead. Yep. And the idea of that they had to invent most sound up until the late 60s sucked. <laughs> Live sound was just a, was a consequence of a, I mean, it really was a public address system that was, Absolutely. That was borrowed from, you know, utilitarian. Uh, it, it wouldn't world. have been much fun to have been at a Beatles concert. No. Which is incredible because we have this kind of romanticism about that era but certainly the images of the beatles concerts are are absolutely romantic but to have actually been an audience person uh you wouldn't have heard much over the people screaming around you exactly um well uh, i want to talk about that later let's just get to the, your big break so the so the evil dead really was your entree entree into the modern, absolutely right? absolutely I, I i learned the the core techniques of sound mixing and and sound system design that I would need to, I basically, it, it exposed me to all the stuff I didn't yet know. And, and it allowed me to then, uh, embark on the path to, to learn that stuff. That's terrific. So, uh, given that, I, I guess it's important. Uh, I guess it's important. It's rather important <laughs> <laughs> that we actually define what a sound designer does because you're not Strictly a composer. You That's correct. In fact, I'm not a composer at all. But you, and yet you talk about theater composition as part of as part of your job, right? Uh, to be to be specific, I actually don't take jobs that where what a project requires is a composer. Um, the The term sound designer is a little bit too vague um, to describe the entire gamut of what. Um, sound people in theater can be tasked with. So the, the range of work from being a musician and composer to being at the other end of, you know, the gamut where you are a sound system designer and you're dealing with the physics and, and all that side of the technology. It's, there are very few people in the, in, in the industry that 
um, are able to become experts in both of those fields. Um, I'm a, I'm an okay musician. I'm, I'm enough of a musician that I can speak with people who are really talented musicians, which is very useful in, in this work because we obviously, you know, are working with orchestras and, and musical directors and, and all the music department people. Um, but I will never be an expert musician. Um, it's enough of a, of a learning endeavor, career long learning endeavor to, to try and do sound reinforcement and sound system design well. And I think that oftentimes on projects, there really would be a benefit if uh, the sound department were staffed by a composer, a music person, and a sound designer or system person. Um, and there have been times when I've, I've been in that situation, and that level of collaboration between the two uh, ranges in the gamut is brilliant we the the work that we can do is really effective you don't have a non-musical person like myself stressing about needing to write a music cue that i'm not very good at doing you don't have a musical person who has to figure out the minutiae of the time delay on the you know rear delay loudspeakers so that collaboration is, is really great when um, a company's resources allow us to to work that way do you think that directors understand that when you're hired like do you what are the generally the expectations from a director when you're called to do a straight play now do you do just straight plays or do you do only musicals and live reinforcement or i imagine you choose your projects to match your skill set right? that is correct I, I do uh i do fewer and fewer straight plays um most of the time nowadays if i'm to do if i do a straight play it's um it's when a play is being done in a theater where uh, it would be helpful to have radio mic reinforcement on the voices. Um, so I do lean towards shows that are, that require um, sound reinforcement for the, for the voices. And I do that because I've, I find that work to be very challenging and it's, and it's the work that I find um, very interesting. So Makes sense. Um, that being said, there are sound designers who are primarily composers. Absolutely, there are magnificent ones. Mm -hmm. And do you think um, do you think that enough thought goes into choosing uh, matching specific designers with specific shows to make sure that those skills are met, or does it have does it does it occur that you know you've hired somebody and the expectations don't match? You think that occurs often? Uh, I don't. I actually think that that um, many times the, the the choices, at least of the stuff that I've seen, um, the work from friends and colleagues, and that I've seen, I think the choices are are really well thought out. Absolutely, um, and and we're very fortunate in the sound community. Uh, we're it's it's a relatively small group of people, and uh, and and there are a lot of great people in this community. We all try and help each other out, um, so. You know, if there's ever challenges, we, we talk to each other and, and you know, we're always kind of make our, our resources available because we all want each other to succeed. And that's something I'm very grateful for. I, I'm really appreciative of our sound community here in Toronto. Well, I guess it's important then really to define what you think a sound designer does then. So they're not a composer, generally. 
Generally, I, if you to be specific, um, there are terms that aren't used very often. But to be specific, there's uh, you can speak of someone who writes music as a as a sound score designer, and someone who works at the reinforcement needs of the show as the sound system designer. Those two jobs often have the interchangeable title of sound designer, and it is a less clunky way to put it in the credits. But uh, specifically what I do as a sound designer, a sound system designer, is I will look at a theater and I will figure out what does it need for a PA system to properly and equally um, reinforce the sound of the show for the patrons that are in the audience. Um, it's very much like the process that a lighting designer would go through in designing specifically a lighting system that is appropriate for the show that, that you're working on. It's not necessarily um, just a, a straight up cookie cutter answer for every show's sound reinforcement needs. So that's what I do. I look at that and I speak, you know, through conversations with the director early on and conversations with the music director early on. We decide what is the aesthetic of the show. Is it a, you know, a quiet piece? Is it a rock show? You know, and through that, we, we make choices on how we're going to decide to um, implement a PA system that will reinforce the sound of the show in a manner that is conducive to the aesthetic of the show. Um, for many years, my expect my uh, understanding of doing small theater. Now, I haven't done a lot of musicals um, necessarily, uh, and even then, sound designers on musicals. My experience has been that they've been they've been a, a house tech who has been obviously has the skills to mix a live show, but their that process. Uh, has been uh, a negotiation between the director and the house tech as opposed to designer. Um, and for many years in legit theater, uh, it's been uh, the speakers are in just two point stereo. There may be an effects speaker on stage um, and uh, somebody's tasked with putting together some sound effects. And so, well, I did, I mean, I did systems design and architecture in when I was originally trained at Ryerson, that was part of our component. <clears throat> there wasn't a lot of, I guess, emphasis in the small theater community um, of creating an original architecture in the way that when we've got we've got a, an inventory and lighting that we use that's sort of fixed in most venues, but there wasn't really uh, an understanding. I like from my own perception that a designer would come in, a sound designer would come in, and just look at the whole system and and make something that was uniquely fitting that show. Do you think that that has changed? Or do you think that, that my perception, first of all, is correct? And B, do you think that that is changing now? Uh, it, your perception is correct. And traditionally, if you're do, working in a small theater, sound infrastructure is oftentimes something that a theater has invested in, uh, much as they invest in a lighting inventory. And so if they have loudspeakers hung they may have a left and right loudspeaker uh which uh will be appropriate if they're doing a show that has sound effects played back and no vocal reinforcement for instance and so for a lot of smaller theaters 90 percent of the time or 90 percent of the of the the work that they're doing what they own is completely appropriate 
and and it's fine because sound the investment in sound equipment and infrastructure it can be very costly so oftentimes if i'm brought in to do a show in a theater that doesn't normally do vocal reinforcement yet we're doing a show that requires vocal reinforcement for aesthetic reasons we will work with suppliers and we will rent in appropriate equipment for that production and we will implement it into the theater and at a much lower cost than if the theater were required to purchase it uh the, the, the idea of bringing in sound equipment specific for the show is sort of a transfer down from larger theaters, from Broadway theaters, um, the Mervish theaters, which are considered to be roadhouses, where they don't have any equipment of any sort because um, it would be unwise for them to own equipment when each show is going to come in with its own particular solution. So uh, working in in that type of uh, scale of theater, you're able to craft a solution that fits the needs of the show, hopefully fits the budget of the show and, uh, and do your work um, as, as needed. So some of that, some of the benefits of, of that blank slate, we try and implement in, in smaller theaters because we want to work hard to increase as much as we can, the, the, the experience of sound in, in any theater, the, the, we, it's all about the audience. We want the audience to be able to, uh, follow the story, enjoy the story, enjoy the music. And so, uh, it's beneficial to not get locked into just a house system and say, well, this is what we got. This is what we're going to use. Or even worse, well, this is what we've always used. Um, to touch back on what you mentioned about, a trend where a house sound person maybe just asked to implement the the mic, the radio mic reinforcement solution that the show needs. Uh, that's something that I try to actively uh, discourage because it's a very difficult thing for any individual technician to accomplish well. The in my experience to make a show that sounds good, it requires a team of sound people. If a mixer is to mix a show well, they need to be allowed to just focus on mixing the show. Uh, we, we do very specific fader moves on almost every line of, of text in a show. And it's, it's like trying to learn a score on a piano or a musical instrument. And so in order for that operation to to be accomplished fluidly, you need to allow your mixer to just focus on doing that. And I also mix and I understand what that experience is like. There are days early on in the rehearsal and tech process where I couldn't tell you if the microphone sounds good because my brain is occupied in building my mix scripts and nailing down the operation of the show. The sound designer's job is to make sure it sounds good. The sound designer makes the choices on how loud something is to be, what its tonality is like. And if we're able to, it's important to have associate designers and assistant designers. So you have a sound designer whose job is to listen. You have an associate designer whose job is to take the notes from the sound designer and implement the changes in the technology. And then you have a mixer whose job is to mix and operate the show smoothly. And hopefully you have an assistant who is there to take care of paperwork and also to start their learning on how to do this work. So 
That's the ideal. We don't often get that. That's pretty resource heavy, but that's what we strive towards. It's quite a difference from, and again, most of my experiences in legit theater, it's quite the difference from having the house tech run everything in effects. I imagine if Absolutely. you're having a, a live, uh, if you've got a live uh, mixer position, do you have someone then doing playback for other, for effects and for tracks and things like that, or is that automated? It, if it's if it's a heavy enough show, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I've had a few scenarios where that's the way we've we've implemented it. Um, you know, it's each show does require thought and in its unique solutions. And sometimes those solutions are you know staffing the show. Another important position that you know I've neglected to mention is also our our second audio person or our A2, which is the person who generally works on the stage and handles all of the microphones and will service the, the orchestra pits and uh, work with the actors and make sure their needs are met because we're strapping technology to our, our colleagues or for our performer colleagues. And so we want to make sure that there's somebody there that can, you know, make sure they're comfortable and that their needs are being met. And if they need assistance, they're right there to assist them. So it, it does take a team of people to really do this work. Um, to the highest degree. And that's what we, that's what we strive for. All right. Well, let's talk about your process specifically as a designer. Then from what I gather from what you said before, uh, it's obviously as similar as all the other designers. You have to establish a vocabulary with the director, make choices, yep, absolutely understand the story, uh, and, uh, and serve the play. Um, where do you usually start? Do you do, um, do you do any research before you begin the play? Like, how do you attack the script? Uh, what's your first step? My first step is, is to usually have a conversation with the director about broad aesthetic. Um, you know, we want to eke out just what the ideas are. I keep it pretty broad brush strokes from the artistic side at the beginning. I also speak to the music director, same sort of deal. Um, I want to get sort of broad brush strokes on what, what they're, they're thinking about uh as soon as a theater has been chosen for for a show my first uh job that i need to do is i need to start to develop the the approach that we're going to take for the sound system design so much like lighting that involves and scenic and all that stuff that involves getting cad drawings bringing them into our uh, prediction software so that we can start to look at uh what we need to create the coverage and the power that the show aesthetic requires. And uh, so, you know, we work with, with our colleagues in lighting and our colleagues in scenic to try and make sure that we can share space and that loudspeakers go where we need them to go, but don't impede uh, the artistic vision of our, you know, lighting designers and our scenic designers. And we start to start there. And uh, the first thing that comes out of that is a list of stuff. And that list of stuff will go out to tender for uh, suppliers to bid upon it. And we'll look at that and see where we end up landing budget-wise. And we'll either be really happy because everything fits or we'll have to have conversations on how we, we alter it to, uh, to fit budgetary restraints. But that's where, that's where we start. Um, and from there, it's a lot of technical work, science work, um, in making sure that we create the system drawings and all the infrastructure that's needed to put the entire thing together. We have a number of major 
areas that we need to look at. We need to look at the loudspeaker configuration and how it relates to the audience and, and how do we give them their experience. We need to look at how do we control the system? What are we using for a console? What do we need for playback? Uh, we need to look at what do we need for an onstage monitoring system? What do we need for a band? Do they need personal monitors? Do they need, you know, in-ears and things like that? And we're looking at radio microphone systems. How do we, you know, put these radios on people so that they work with the costume design so that we can hide things nicely um, and have them still sound good? And so there's all sorts of elements that s sequentially need to be thought about when you're doing this type of uh, design process. And let's talk about the acoustic choices. So, um, again, I'm naive. I feel like a musical uh, or a live reinforcement experience should be naturalistic. But uh, and it sounds like that's not always the case. Uh, is, it, is it just a matter of taking the person on stage, amplifying them so they sound like they're next to you? Or is it, do you shape it to, um, to, to denote a period? Do you shape it to de denote uh, an environment specifically on stage? Or do you not go that far? Is it just a naturalistic reinforcement? It's an interesting term, naturalistic reinforcement, because it, it's, a, it's a thing that doesn't really exist. Natural sound is what you get if you put a human on a stage and you ask them to speak or sing in a room with no reinforcement technology or loudspeakers or microphones involved. Um, as soon as we put a microphone and a loudspeaker into play, we've, we've gone beyond what is natural. We are, we are working in purely synthetic. Now we can, we can sculpt that synthetic sound so that it sounds the least unnatural. And that's really what we, we tend to try and strive for. The human hearing system is really uh, an interesting sense because it's, it's a very fast response. Um, it responds to stimulus very fast. It's designed to keep you safe. It's designed to let you know when there's a you know, a, a predator sneaking up behind you and you hear the twig break and you go, whoa, and you flee. So it's, it's very quick to judge. And, and as soon as you start to, to make the human voice sound strange, it, it becomes a distraction. It becomes a, a subconscious distraction to the audience. And so we don't necessarily have to revert just to a human on a stage with no vocal reinforcement or no, no loudspeaker reinforcement in order to, to have the audience not be distracted. But we do have to work within a parameter of, of quality where we need to make the human voice sound acceptably like a human voice to the audience so that they don't go, hey, you're subconsciously go, hey, you're messing with me. There's something not right here. So uh, a big part of our work is to minimize that distraction. And we do, that's, that's what we achieve through making large sound systems that are built out of many distributed components. We, we try and uh, democratize the, the way that the sound is, is propagated throughout the theater so that there isn't just a you know, loud source left of the stage and a loud source right of the stage because that's distracting. If you're looking at an actor who is standing in the center of the stage, 
yet you're hearing their voice spread to your left and to your right, your brain's going to go, that's something, something strange here. It's not, it's going to pull you out of the storytelling. Uh, in a lighting analogy, uh, for example, I did a, um, uh, a show that was supposed to be film noir mm. and film noir is about control of shadows. It's about, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's very specifically filmic. And so we're not, I don't have control over where people look with like we do with the camera mm. or spills. So you have to have very tight control. And I found that to create something that looked simple, you had to put many different layers of components in it. And it sounds like what you're saying is to make something sound naturalistic. It's not just, you can't just have one channel coming from left and one channel from right. You have to have a whole bunch of different sources. So it sounds as naturalistic as you want it to sound. Uh, and if you were to draw back the curtain, you'd see this giant technology that was making it sound natural, like reverting it back to what we expect, which is not all this technology, right? That's, that's an excellent analogy, actually, because that, that's exactly what happens. Um, it takes a lot of work to make it sound like you're not doing much. Which I, th which, I, which I think is why people think it's easy, right? And you say, oh, we'll just do a little musical and we'll get some radio mics and it'll be fine. And then you put together your two-channel stereo and go, why does it sound like crap in here? What did you do? Like, yeah. And then you have to spend more money, I guess, to make it sound naturalistic or make it sound complete, yeah. right? Yeah, ab absolutely. It's, it's very deceiving in that manner. You could probably use that as a tie-in to the Tony thing if you want, because that's why they dropped it, because they're like, we don't know how to judge it, because when it's good, we don't notice it. Uh, yeah. Okay, so uh, let, me, let me segue back into the process. Sure. Um, okay, so we'll talk, we'll, we'll talk about that, that. That'll be a great segue into the Tonys later, but yeah. let's just talk about, sorry, <clears throat> starting again. Uh, we'll use that to Subway, well, Subway. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that, that's a great place to segue uh, into the, the, the collaborators' discussion with, uh, with the Tonys. But let, let me just finish this, this discussion about process first. Um, so you've gone through and you've created, um, I think we got to the point where you created the architecture. Um, what, what do you have to do to implement that uh, in the load-in? Uh, like, what is the next, how do you get to sitting in the front of house? Is it just plugging everything together? Or is there what constitutes, again, because everything is lighting for me, a focus, right? Is there a moment where you have to go, okay, well, now to implement this, we have to do a whole bunch of things that require your ears at certain positions in the house, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we load in much similar to a lighting rig. Um, you know, we have to get our stuff in the air. We have to get all our cable run. Uh we have to get our racks in place, our radios, our front of house positions, all that sort of stuff. And once all that stuff is in place and, and operational, uh, we then will have t a focus session where we will focus our loudspeakers. Now, a lot of our larger loudspeaker systems are, are what are called curvilinear arrays. And so they have a variable geometry, and, and part of our prediction process will be to, to calculate the, the particular... Uh, angles that the loudspeakers need to be constructed in. So our main just, just before you go on, what is that process like? Is there a, is there a um, like a, a CAD program yes. or something? There's like a, yeah. is it, it's predictive, like it predicts about what the audio is going to be at a certain place. Yeah, that's correct. So um, from the most basic uh, approach, you can 
you can use a, a CAD program like AutoCAD or Vectorworks to to actually figure out your your splay angles on these curvilinear array systems ju- just by using um, the dispersion pattern uh, degrees that the loudspeaker is specified at. But that's that's not commonly how we do it. Many manufacturers of these loudspeaker systems will provide um, their custom prediction software so you can import your CAD drawings of your theater and then hang a virtual loudspeaker array and you can see its power coverage and uh, or you can see it you can see its power output and you can see its horizontal and its vertical coverage pattern and so you can then adjust your array geometry to say okay this shape of loudspeaker system gives me this coverage shape with intolerances across my audience area which is so helpful <laughs> it's it's you know the last decade of of uh advances in in technology for for doing prediction and for uh you know in loudspeaker design and uh giving us giving designers the the tools to um to be able to uh you know sit at her kitchen table and and figure out a bunch of the stuff before we ever hang a loudspeaker and put out a measurement mic um it's just astounding i'm very grateful for the people who have figured all this stuff out and it sounds like um I mean, in the smaller uh, and regional houses, which are being built, uh, you know, in a, in a standardized center process where you're going to be doing mostly le- legit theater and you're, you, those choices are going to be going to have been made for you. Um, do you think that we have that process down? I mean, most theater consultants have acousticians that work with them and they've got the, the, the company that's providing the sound gear. Uh, there's got to be an intermediary that's making those decisions, right? Doing exactly that work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Those spaces. Do you think it's adequate enough or? Well, it's actually interesting that you mentioned acousticians and you mentioned that there is a uh, collaboration between acousticians and system designers, because that's actually commonly what doesn't happen. <laughs> so, and uh, so that introduces challenges where you have acousticians doing work that, don't take into account that there will be a PA system in, in the venue at some point in time. So uh, that collaboration, it would be great if that happened more often because you would really come up with the ultimate result. But uh, many spaces that we work within either were never addressed by an acoustician at all or they were and uh, you need to find the best compromise based on what the acousticians decided was appropriate to then implement a sound system design that works within the acoustics of the venue, which commonly means we have to be very specific with how we spray our energy out of the loudspeakers so that we aren't energizing surfaces that will cause uh, reflections and energy to bounce around. And we're focusing our energy specifically on, uh, on the audience. So that's part of our planning process. We have to try and be very specific with our loudspeaker coverage. Uh, do you ever take steps to change the environment of the theater to reduce those kind of bounce or inc- or increase them? I know some theaters uh, actually have different configurations when they're doing symphonies or vocal, you know, reinforcement, or they're doing a band, or they're doing, you know, vocal feedback uh, or vocal feedback, vocal presentations like uh, award shows and things like that. Uh, and they've got drapery that could be set up. Do you ever do that kind of work, or is that just, are you relying on the 
the configuration of the space to make those decisions? Uh, if there, if it's a venue that's been designed to have variable acoustics or controllable acoustics, we'll actually we'll absolutely take advantage of those systems. Um, so if that means closing acoustic drapes to reduce reflections, we we'll, we will happily use those uh, assets. Um, but in many places, you don't have variable acoustics. Like a, and a, a theater such as the Royal Alex, which was built at a time where the music for shows was written differently. There were more dynamics. The, the orchestrations would allow a space for the human voice to sit. We had performers on the stage whose uh, training and aesthetics were you know, different for the, from some of the modern stuff that we do now. And uh, they could sing out to a house full of people. And in, most importantly, we had audience members who their day-to-day -day life exposure to sound and music was a lot different than than an audience person's exposure today they weren't listening to you know high quality loudspeakers in their homes they weren't listening to you know high quality headphones or going to see high quality sound in cinemas and so the threshold of listening has has changed for from an audience perspective and and so what would have been an acceptable sound level from a singer back, you know, 80 years ago or a hundred years ago, it would absolutely be considered too quiet to a modern audience and they wouldn't enjoy that experience as much. So when we go to a theater like the Royal Alex and we have to make decisions on how we put a PA system in there, we're dealing with a, an environment that was, that was architecturally built to help the human voice travel to the audience and uh and has reflective properties to direct energy in the in the space that uh can sometimes work against you when you're using a loudspeaker to 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 push um sound through the space so we we again look at the cad drawings and we try and configure our loudspeaker systems to be very specific to put the energy on the audience not on the architecture and that's how we achieve um the correct balance of direct sound versus reflective sound that we need to um, provide to the audience. And that's a very important ratio to, to maintain because if an audience person hears a louder reflection of a sound source, than they hear of the direct sound from a loudspeaker from a, a voice, it, it becomes very hard for, uh, for the audience to understand the words, the intelligibility, the speech intelligibility drops. And so it's very important that we do our best to maintain the correct ratio of direct to reflected sound in order to allow the audience to, to hear the storytelling. Now that reminds me, uh, or that uh, makes me think that if a, if a group is trying, is making a decision about doing a musical, uh, and they choose Oklahoma versus songs for a new world, uh, both I mean, Songs for a New World, I think, was is a more cabaret kind of presentation than Oklahoma. But Oklahoma was written in a time where there wasn't live reinforcement. And then you try to apply live reinforcement to Oklahoma. Uh, do you have to direct it differently? Do you have to have a discussion with the musical director about those? Like our musical director, musical directors must be aware of that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, if you, Or if you're doing a modern musical in your smaller space and you think, well, the band is small. We can just do it live. We don't have to worry about mics. It sounds like what you're saying is when you're doing a modern musical, especially one that is 
produced uh, in the Broadway system or the West End system or L.A. where, uh, you know, you're expecting it was, bi- it was made for a large audience that was supposed to be reinforced, then you have to be careful when you make your sound choices because the music is not there to accommodate an, a live voice. It's there to accommodate a reinforced voice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, th- and those are all, it's a delicate balancing act um, to do the, to to make the choices that are appropriate to a show and appropriate to a show's budget. Um, at the, at, uh, at its most basic, a drum set is loud. If you're going to hit a snare drum, it's going to create a lot of energy. And so if you've got a, a musical that's been written with a bit of a rock score, you don't want to have to ask your drummer to compl- to play his drum set so quiet so quietly with without energy um so that you can hear the the singer it just it doesn't it becomes weird so uh we try and you know make choices that are appropriate to the way that the the music was written now would you maybe do oklahoma without radio mic reinforcement you possibly could if you had appropriate um you know casting and uh you know had an appropriate theater had an orchestra pit I was going to say, because if you're doing it in a black box, it's going to be completely different. It was Absolutely. written to be in, a, in an orchestra pit. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> With a covering, a specific acoustic configuration. Absolutely. When you have the direct sound of an orchestra coming at you from a stage where they are at the same level and not recessed in a pit, they, it's very, very loud. <laughs> and it's, and it's, un, it's unrealistic to expect a, a, a vocal performer to compete with instruments, which are tools that were designed to... to artificially you know spray sound energy so you know yeah we do have to be sympathetic to that and we have to not you know ask our our singers to do something that is it's really unrealistic to to expect them to be able to do all right and then just a final finishing off your process so uh, everything's focused you're sitting in rehearsals what is your day-to-day experience like um this is the this is crazy, but this is the first time I've heard of a mix score. Ah, uh, and it makes perfect sense, uh, but uh, it seems like it's very complex. And to, how do you communicate those ideas to your mixer, and how do you share ideas and resolve conflicts when the mixer goes, "Well, this sounds like this sounds better if I do this," and you go, "No, no, no, no." do it this way because it's trust me it's going to sound better this way like how do you how do you communicate those ideas and how do you record them uh that that's a very good question and and uh i should give you uh some some uh pictures of some scripts to that would be awesome to yeah, help we, to we illustrate include, this yeah we include that in the, on the show notes yeah. So, yeah um so the process uh the relationship between a designer and a mixer is very collaborative and uh you know my job as a designer is to support the mixer when they're when they're particularly when they're starting the the early days of learning the mix on a show. So you know what we do is we we start with a script, and uh, and the first thing that I, myself uh, or the first thing that I'll do is I'll take the script, I'll bring it into Photoshop, and I'll erase all of the stage directions, anything in the script that is that is not actual spoken or sung text the goal of that process is that we want to create a script that has zero distractions so that the mixer when they see a line on the page they know it's something that's going to have a corresponding microphone fade or move and they're going to need to pick it up uh we don't want them to go 
you know, get lost by reading a stage direction than realize that, oh, I'm missing the next actual line of text. So we clean the script. We'll, if it's a small show, we'll have uh, the radio mics on faders. If it's eight or less, we'll, we'll run them on their own individual channel faders. If it's any more than eight, we start to need to move microphones around so that the mixer can control them appropriately from a small group of faders. And so we call, we call those DCAs or control groups or, or whatnot. And so uh, the next step in our process will be to go through the script and realize and mark out, you know, who's on this fader at this point in time, who's on this fader. And then if we run out of faders, then we realize, okay, we're going to need to program a, a scene change in the console so that we can move new people onto our bank of control groups. And we repeat that through the entire show. And so we figure out what the fader assignments need to be so that the mixer can can realistically control the, the show or control a large number of radios. Um, once we start working in rehearsals and we only have, say, rehearsal piano, we don't have the orchestra yet, the, we try and get the actors into radio mics right from the get-go so that the mixer can be uh, practicing and you know, rehearsing along with the, sh with the actors and, and building that operation. We can discover changes or if we've made a mistake or, or whatnot during that process. Um, and at that point, it's really about the mechanical operation. So while the mixer is learning the mechanics of the operation, the sound designer is dealing with the sonics. We're working with the, the, the music department, you know, addressing any needs that might come up with them. Um, and the whole thing sort of starts to, starts to gel. And so by the time we get working with, uh, orchestra, which generally we get a, we get some orchestra calls where we get to work with just the orchestra and we don't have cast. And so we can we can work on how you know the sound of the orchestra is we can um you know give them attention to to help to address any needs they may need audio monitoring needs they may need video monitoring um you know we just try and give them give them the attention that they need and uh and then when the magic day comes that we have rehearsal with orchestra and with cast we then get to hear where we've ended up and from that point we'll you know, work on uh, discussing dynamics of numbers, you know, how, where does it need to be loud? Where does it need to be quiet? Um, and, you know, we, we put a lot of thought into, into structuring a, a mix that, that has movement in it. And again, it's a very collaborative process. Uh, I've, I've been very fortunate that I've worked with a few excellent well more than a few but i've worked with excellent mixers um and i've gotten to work with a few people multiple times and uh owen hutchinson out at the citadel in edmonton is uh his him and i have been collaborating for probably about five years now and the relationship is it's unlike any other colleague relationship that i that i've i know of uh because it is so intrinsically collaborative uh I might have an idea on how something, uh, how I think it should sound, and the mixer may have an idea to say, "Well, like you said, what what about like this?" And I'm open to that type of collaboration because it might be the better choice, right? And um, and especially when you're working with good people, it's uh, it's very valuable to 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 come at it, creating a mix from that collaborative point of view. And again, I've been a mixer and I've gotten to work with uh, great designers. I just got to work with uh, uh, Garth Helm and Jonathan Deans and their team recently. And, uh, 
and it's a it's a very collaborative uh job so that's fantastic now can uh can someone else step into that like if somebody gets sick and you don't have and you haven't had somebody along with the mixer from the beginning right can is the is the paperwork and the score robust enough that somebody who's experienced can step in and go well i can run this show it's very very difficult very difficult i've i've been in that position myself before and uh it's it's a very scary position to be in um and and actually illustrate it it illustrates um a bit of a problem because from an operational standpoint it the mixer's uh track for lack of a better word is uh it it's highly integrated with the show almost every line in the show is a mix move so you it's not something that you can just easily pick up. It doesn't matter if you're a great mixer or not. You need to to have built the muscle memory in your hands that allows you to mix the show fluidly. And it, and oftentimes, if you're just reading it off the page, you're late. So it, you kind of got to be in simpatico with with the the show in order to do it well. Um, and it and it and it's a big challenge to to have someone else trained that can do that, that can mix a show as well on, on larger shows that have longer runs. It's absolutely that usually what it is, is the second audio person, the, the A2, the, the radio person. Uh, once the show opens, they'll get moved out to front of house and uh, someone else will be brought in. that will be taught the, the backstage track and they will, you know, be able to be the original a2 will then move to front of house and spend two or three weeks with the mixer learning to mix the show and generally they're learning to mix it in front of an audience because it's it's financially unfeasible to schedule another two or three weeks of rehearsal time just so you can train another person on the mix so what happens is they get taught in pieces but in front of a live audience which is incredible because if you were to replace one of the principals you would have rehearsal for the principal you would absolutely have rehearsal right. for the principal because people, yeah. people see that as a high risk whereas it sounds like this is an equal high risk it's a showstopper absolutely absolutely um and and it's it's a risk that people balance as being acceptable if you have a short run like if you have a six-week run of a show you're maybe going to get someone adequately trained by the end of your run. So it, it's just not something that happens fast. And, um, you know, it's sort of a, a, a measured risk. Mm -hmm. I think that any show that, you know, is going to run for, you know, a few months or more, um, you absolutely have to train another person because you know, life happens. You, you know, someone is sick or they, you know, need to attend to a life event if you want to not have to cancel your performance for the evening, it's in producer's best interest to, to spend the money to train, to train a sub mixer. And then commonly what happens once that sub is trained is that they'll mix two or three shows a week. So they may mix the matinees, uh, because again, it's, it's an operation that requires muscle memory to do smoothly. And so you can't just sort of train somebody and then be like, okay, now we'll call you when we need you. You know, they, you want to keep them in kind of a, a bit of a rotation so that they can stay uh, sharp with the show. Now there are some mixers in, in Broadway, briefcase mixers who, you know, they 
won't necessarily have a full-time position on a show, but they will have learned to mix maybe two or three shows and will kind of, they will make their living by rotating amongst those shows. That's uh, <laughs> amazing talent. If, if you can, uh, it's as you know. difficult as working in a rep season and doing three or four shows. Certainly. Rep, right? Of course. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Kind of I have a lot of respect for those people. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I think that gets through the process. Let's talk about uh, a couple themes that we spoke about earlier before we started the interview about uh, the quality of sound. In for scenography and for lighting design and everything that sits inside the pros, it really is confined. Let's say it's in a proscenium house. It's confined to the frame. I mean, shows like Cats and... Starlight Express have broken that fourth wall specifically, and they've come out into the house and made it more of an immersive, envir- immersive environment. And you've uh, there's also also shows that are more environmental or, um, you know, spe- or site specific. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a show that's specifically uh, a pros show, uh, everything stays behind that fourth wall, and it's broken in specific instances, but rarely. Uh, sound occurs all in the front of house. Yes. Uh, you know, not not necessarily the full back, but uh, obviously all the stuff that's important to the audience. Um, how do you approach? Is it? Are you creating an environment out in the front of house? And how do people reconcile that with the action that's occurring on stage? Is that something that's easy to do? Is it? Is it feasible? I mean, we've all done shows where, you know, there's been a car crash in the back right corner. Well, the car crash is happening somewhere. I mean, they may look back there, uh, I guess, but that's not happening on stage. It's happening off stage. And yet it's at the back of the house, which yeah. doesn't, which is in Congress. Right? Well, and that's a good word to use. It's, it can be in, in Congress because, uh, it's very easy to distract an audience person by just putting a sound behind them for, for no reason that for reason isn't apparent. Um, for, for the general reinforcement of the show, for the vocal reinforcement of the show, we're wanting to keep the audience's attention f- forward to the show. So we try and make our sourcing um, appear that it's coming from the stage. And we do that uh, by using center cluster loudspeakers um, and, uh, and just keeping trying to keep the image as central as, as we can. Now, f- surround loudspeakers can be effective for using using them for effects playback, for instance, or trying to do work with uh, modifying the perception of acoustics. You can use them to put, uh, you know, reverb returns or things like that into the space to sort of give some, give some stuff that's kind of fun. Um, you know, I, you, can, you can do all sorts of stuff with surround speakers, but I would not, or at least I haven't yet, I wouldn't uh, necessarily, you know, throw an electric guitar all of a sudden coming from the rear of the house, um, you know, or, or put a, a voice back there for, unless we wanted the audience to actually turn their heads and go, what's going on back there. Yeah. I remember doing a show at stage West where, um, I was actually operating lights and sound and it was a, uh, uh, it was called Jake's women and it was starring one of the guys from three's company. I have no idea. I can't remember the guy's <laughs> name. I think he played Larry. And, uh, <laughs> at one point in the show, the, uh, you know, he has a bit of a mental break and he starts hearing voices from all the women that he's uh, really treated quite incorrectly during the show. And uh, they come from all over the house, right? Mm, and it was, nice. a, it was a specific 
choice. Yeah. To have them come from the, you know, one's up here and then one's down there and one's over there. Uh, it, it seems, I mean, it seems acceptable, but it, it really, you are really drawing the audience out. Yeah. Of the action, and, right? And there's, there's no boundaries on, you know, if you want to do something for an artistic reason, I mean, you can, there's no, there's no rule to say that you, that you can't do that. And that isn't an effective design choice. And, um, I just think that it's important, you know, particularly, like I said, the distinction for the vocal reinforcement or your musical reinforcement that you, to understand that we can vary. It's a very fine line between enhancing the sonic experience and causing a distraction. We're very, very sensitive. Humans are very sensitive in their hearing system. And, uh, and it's important to take that into account when you're making your choices. Mm-hmm. And it's why doing something like throwing the voices of the women all over the theater can be very effective because we are very sensitive. And so strong choices that, imp- that take advantage of the sensitivity of the human hearing system, um, you know, you can, you can really get into an audience psychologically in a way that you can't with, with necessarily with, with vision. And uh, and how about audience expectation? You've got uh, people with home theater systems that have multiple channels, nine channels and a center channel or whatever, a base. <laughs> uh, is there an expectation from the audience? I mean, so many people, I, 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 get, I, I have the sensation that the audience, many people don't see the difference between live theater and a film yeah. production, right? They seem to act that way anyways. Uh, is there an expectation from an audience point of view to be immersed in the environment? Um or, you know, has is that being done, or is it is it really staying in a theatrical world? When these, I mean, you're doing mostly musicals, which are very theatrical. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, would it be is it acceptable to create uh, an environment in the front of house uh, that plays along with the action that, that scores it basically with uh, environmental choices? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly acceptable to try and do that stuff. I mean, one of the challenges of, of creating a, a surround system in a live theater environment is that in order for it to provide a similar experience to all of the people in the audience, you need to ensure that you have enough loudspeaker coverage and individual control of those loudspeakers to, to make sure that, you know, what the people in the, the rear right of the house are experiencing is similar to what the people in the the rear left of the house are, are going to experience so that you don't, you know, create an experience for one group of the audience and leave the other part of the audience go, I don't know what's going on over there. Right. So, and that, that can be done and it can be done effectively. It's, it's pretty resource heavy. Um, a, an example of a show that has done that would be Aladdin. And the way that that, uh, that was achieved in Aladdin was to create, uh, to hang a large number of small loudspeakers under the balcony uh, and over the balcony at the Mervish Theater and to have individual control over each of those loudspeakers. And that's a lot of loudspeakers. It requires a lot of infrastructure. It requires a lot of DSP or computational power. Uh, and And it was a big thing to implement. In addition to using that system to move sound effects around, Aladdin, for instance, went one step further is that they implemented a technology to try and localize the sourcing of the voices of the actors to the actor spatially. And they used um, a system called Timax to do that and to track the lead actors. And so what the, the system would do would be to put tiny amounts of the actor's voice in 
all of these small loudspeakers and calculate the appropriate time delays for each of these loudspeakers in real time to track the actor through through space and uh and that can be pretty effective it it's out of reach of many productions because it took a lot of resources and it was such a big implementation of that particular system that you know the company in england was sending their software engineers to be in toronto for weeks and weeks because they would have to make changes to the software because they had never implemented it on such a large scale before so you know there's certainly that's some groundbreaking stuff and uh, and very cool that disney is you know willing to to let their sound designers um and their teams to you know try and push that envelope uh but that's the type of effort that you do need to put in to to do that work well and well meaning that you give the similar experience to all of the people who bought a ticket for the show because that's that's really at the end of the day the goal of the sound system designer and uh it's to to democratize the experience of the patrons and as one of my mentors puts it there's no such thing as a cheap seat you know everyone who is in that theater to experience the show deserves um a chance to experience the same show as anyone else and an example of how something like that could be implemented is love in um las vegas beatles love designed by uh, jonathan deans um where every seat in the theater contains loudspeakers. So you have a full surround. You have two front speakers and two rear speakers in your seats, in your headrest, to give each person the same experience. There's also a big PA, and all stuff comes from that too, but that's how they solve this problem of how do you create uh, an immersive audio environment for your your patrons and there's thousands of loudspeakers involved in that does that mean every loudspeaker has its own delay uh processing going on as well so it's matching the mains uh there's definitely processing going on now it's you gotta think about it as the relationship of a, of a loudspeaker to another loudspeaker so if the relationships let's just show it's in the round so there could be averaging of relationships so the way that each zone needs to be timed. It might not be as specific as to each individual loudspeaker, but it could be groupings of loudspeakers. Um, now I certainly know that again, that was a very resource heavy, um, system designed to implement. And at certain points, some compromises needed to be made on, you know, types of loudspeakers and um, a level of control and stuff. But, um, but a really ambitious system and a very effective solution to what, that team wanted to achieve and what they wanted to give to their audience as a sonic experience. So pushing the envelope. It's really cool. That's great. Right. Okay. So we, you mentioned, we talked about the wall of sound earlier. Yes. Uh, let's just talk about that. We'll segue into your training at, uh, at Sim Sim school. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, so, uh, Sim is a product that Meyer sound makes, which is for measuring, sound systems and uh, loudspeakers and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Sim School is part of the Meyer education program where you can learn to uh, operate that platform, that system, but more importantly, learn the reasons why you would use the platform and what are you trying to measure? Why are you trying to measure it? Uh, what decisions can you make based on the measurements that you have taken? 
Okay, so uh, the Grateful Dead. Yes, the year is 1968 or something, <laughs> something like that. And they've been playing with two point stereo with a bunch of horns and maybe a bass rig and some tin cans. Yeah, and uh, and a PA system that was based on technology from the 1930s. So what? Uh, what was the gentleman's name? Bob McPherson. Bob McCarthy. Bob McCarthy. Yeah. John Meyer and Bob McCarthy okay. spent a lot of time working with uh, the Grateful Dead. And uh, and so in the 70s, the Grateful Dead had a sound system called the Wall of Sound. And so what they were trying to achieve was uh, uh, an optimal ratio between direct and reflective sound, which... You know, they did that by putting their PA system in the air and pointing it at the people instead of stacking it up and pointing it at the wall of the arena. So, you know, they, they're really making some some advances. And uh, and they experimented with things like having uh, loudspeaker systems specific to an instrument. So there's the guitar system, there's the bass system, there's the piano system, there's the vocal system, there's the drum system and uh and seeing how experimenting with how that affected what the audience perceived and they also did an interesting thing where they put the pa system behind the 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 band and it also provided the stage monitoring so by using two microphones for every singer spaced very close together one in inverted polarity from the other uh the singer would sing into one of the two microphones and the PA system would hear both of the microphones and combine the positive polarity and the negative polarity versions and anything that was that was uh, uh, inclusive to both of those microphone signals would effectively be reduced through cancellation. So, the, leaving just the voice. So it was pretty pretty clever stuff, and they had some smart people go, working on that stuff, um, and. Uh, and a and a really inventive spirit. They were the Grateful Dead were very supportive of their technical people and trying to um, push the the envelope on uh, on shows and sound and theat you know lighting and all that sort of stuff. How do you tour a big show effectively and and blah blah. So now fifty years uh, you know later the the band you know poign- poignantly has just finished their their. F- set of farewell tours and uh so in the 70s and 80s john meyer and and bob mccarthy were working with the band and and they were endeavoring to figure out what actually happens when you you try and use more than one loudspeaker together how do you make them you know work well together and and all that sort of business and so through that research they they developed um SIM, which is their their measurement platform, which allows you to do FFT analysis, which is uh, uh, fast Fourier transform analysis on uh, a signal, which uh, will basically allow you to compare a test signal and a reference signal and then show you the result, which is the difference between those signals or what has changed uh, as that signal has passed, you know, through uh, the electronics, uh, out the loudspeakers and back into the measurement microphone. So... Uh, so through that work that, that John Meyer and Bob McCarthy did, uh, working with the Grateful Dead and, and figuring out how loudspeakers work, they they took that that knowledge and they started. John Meyer started to develop loudspeaker systems, which um, were easier to combine, you know, to take single loudspeakers to make larger systems. And uh, they developed um, SIM, which is their system 
measurement platform. And, uh, and now in the final concerts that the Grateful Dead have just completed, uh, the sound system that they utilized was the latest Meyer sound, cutting edge, large format line array system. And, uh, and Bob McCarthy was posting online as a patron that he was at the concerts. And, uh, and so it's just kind of a poignant full circle thing. Um, and, uh, and I've been fortunate enough to, to train with Bob and my first experience, uh, about five or six years ago, uh, going to a, a training course with Bob. I, I, the first thing I took out of it was that I really realized I don't know much about sound, even though I'd been working as a sound person for, for a number of years. And so it was really eye opening to, and, uh, to have the curtain sort of drawn back and to, to get an insight into the actual physical phenomenons that are going on when you, um, you know, put a signal into, uh, an amplifier, it comes out a loudspeaker and how does that, uh, energy behave, uh, in the air and, and what happens when you, you know, need to use more than one loudspeaker to cover your audience and all that stuff. And so learning, being able, able to learn that from someone who was instrumental in, in, in originally developing our, our modern understanding of that, um, has been really, really great. And, uh, and I actually just ran into him not too long ago and uh, we had a little chat and he publishes a, a great book that, you know, and every sound person should should own its sound design uh, sound system design and optimization by bob mccarthy and he's coming out with a third third edition of that soon and uh and even someone who's helped to you know originally develop this work is still thinking about and refining the approaches and how do you do this ever so much incrementally better all right so describe to me your experience then that you had going to the school what was the what was the big difference? You had been working in sound design up until that point. Well, what was missing from that original training, or what was it that that turned that what turned the light bulb on while you were down there? Well, the 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 big thing I took away from that first training was uh, was how to actually focus a loudspeaker properly. It seems like a fundamental thing that you would need to know as a as a sound person working with loudspeakers, and it is. But uh, I had been doing it wrong. I didn't, uh, I didn't actually understand the full physical phenomena of what a loudspeaker, how a loudspeaker operates. Um, and so learning that basic piece of, of information made my, my work a lot easier and a lot better pretty quickly. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, what was the, um, uh, Evil Dead was your first sort of breakout hit. Um, but when did you feel that before you went down to Meyer, what what did you feel was your uh, your first show where you hit your stride? Like you felt like, yeah, this is what I should I, like. I know I got this covered. Uh, it's interesting because it's it's an interesting question because for me it feels like it's an it's an incremental evolution and uh, and actually, you know, I I think my most recent show is. Maybe we all think this, but my most recent show is the one where I'm kind of like, oh, that was, that's the best one. You know, I feel like it's, it's, it's constantly evolving. Um, you know, I just, my last show that I designed was a production of Avenue Q at the Citadel Theater in Edmonton. And it, that particular process, it just all came together. It it was an excellent director, uh, Dana Tkach, and who created a very collaborative environment from the get-go. Uh, we had an excellent musical director, Don Horsborough. Um, 
excellent cast, excellent musicians, excellent crew. It, it was just, it was just a magic collaboration, and and it made the work feel simple, even though we're still doing all the stuff. But it made it feel simple and, and easy and light and joyous, and we got to put on a show that um, we ended up with a show that that I was very very happy with, and uh, and is I think the best sounding show that I've that I've done to date. Um, but the the journey of getting to to today it it, it does feel relatively incremental um, because every time you know you learn a little bit about oh maybe how do you do that loudspeaker thing better or how do you do that microphone thing better or how do you have this conversation with your mixer better or how do you be more clear with your collaborators that of what your needs are how do you outline your budgets and your schedules and all that stuff yeah that all just kind of incrementally gets better when you know you realize oh it should have been more clear that we needed you know no hammer drilling to happen while we're tuning the pa system next time i will make it clear in the first production meeting that we would like it to be maybe painting can happen while we tune the sound system but not the hammer drilling right well take us through you brought up avenue q let's just take it through take us through the process there um was there a specific i mean these the avenue q I can't imagine anybody doesn't know what Evan Q is who's listening to this, but uh, it is uh, Mouth Puppets. It's a, yes. it's a puppet show, and uh, it's a puppet show. <laughs> it seems I'm not going to say this belittling because no, I just did a big thing with Ronnie Burkett in the spring, and if I'd said, "Oh, it's just a puppet show," he'd yeah. kill me. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a it's a big production, and, and the people who are operating the puppets are seeing live, yes, and are beside them, obviously. Um, how do you how did you approach? Was there any special approach you needed to take because of that uh, sort of setup, or was it just a, like, just like any other? musical uh at first i was a little concerned just in how having the puppet choreography like close to their to the actors faces where we're, we're putting microphones um if there would be any negative interactions with um how the sound you know if it would bounce off the puppets i i wasn't in edmonton at the time when we were doing the initial design i was in toronto so i couldn't lay hands on stuff so trying to err on the side of caution and so I wanted to make sure that we optimized our microphone placements to keep the microphones out of the majority of the, of the, the puppet business. So for instance, if a performer was operating a puppet with their right hand, mainly we would put the microphone on the left side. As it turned out, it, once we got listening to stuff and in practice, it, it didn't make a difference. The puppets were not a negative in, in influence on the microphone. So we started to move the microphones around for, for different reasons, such as, you know, when an actor had to stand next to a set piece or whatnot to avoid a reflection off a wall. Um, but we had one moment in the show where uh, Trekkie Monster is the Trekkie Monster puppet is being operated by two performers upstairs in a window, but yet being voiced by the Trekkie Monster actor in the lower level and behind upstage of a door. So they're singing directly into the back of a door in an enclosed piece of set. And so when we first, when we did that, that blocking for the first time, it sounded very bad because you could hear that, you know, there was this re reflection coming back off the door and going back into the microphone and making it sound unnatural. So, but we were able to, to, to solve it. We, we had some acoustical foam around, some Sonics, and uh, we were able to coat the line, the back of the, uh, you know, our carpenters lined the back of the door piece for us in this foam so the actor could sing directly into the foam. And, and, uh, and then it was seamless. And every night that got a huge laugh because the actor would, 
very quickly emerge from the the lower level after the the you know the puppet upstairs stopped singing and and uh, in a ridiculous way and and it, and it got a huge laugh because we didn't give away that the actor was hiding upstage at the door because sonically we fixed the fact that you could hear originally that he was standing upstage of a door so it's that kind of you know stuff detail that we were able to sort of get into and uh, and yeah. That's terrific. Okay, so uh, any other productions that you want to talk about that are that were really important to you? Uh, well, I just I just finished mixing uh, the Heart of Robin Hood for Mervishes, and again, that was Garth Helm and Jonathan Deans and, and their team of, of sound people who um, are some of the best best in the industry. And uh, so, being a part of that sound team is was very impactful. First, it, it was nice to be able to you know, step up and, and, and be a part of, take a job like that and then do it well and be accepted, you know, do it to, to a level that was, you know, to the standards that, um, that was, that were demanded. Um, and, uh, and it was a great sounding show. The, you know, the, the band was fantastic and, and the design team was awesome and the, the equipment was great. And so it was really, uh, really nice to, to have that experience. Okay, let's turn to the Tonys. So give us a brief history of sound design and the Tonys. When was it first awarded? Uh, the first Tony Award for sound design was in the 2008 Tony Awards. And, uh, and very recently in this last season, the Tony Award for sound design for plays and musicals uh, was eliminated. And, and uh, it seems... I had the notion that it had been part of the Tonys far before then. There's a bunch of awards that are given out for several years now. They haven't televised them. I think that leg design has not been. Yeah, they don't televise te- a bunch of stuff. The, yeah. the design awards yeah. anymore. Anymore, yeah. yeah. So I had a feeling that sound design had been awarded far before then. But it's a brand. It's a relatively no, and thing. It, and it and it took uh, many many years of lob- lobbying to uh, to get the sound Tony. Uh, implemented. Uh, John Gramada, sound designer from New York, uh, worked tirelessly on on achieving that. Um, you know, part of it is some of the heritage of, of why it took so long to get a sound Tony stems from, um, you know, the, the, the thought in the, the unions and, you know, in, in uh, the IATSE locals that uh, sound operators and people who do sound are actually assistant electricians there is no actual sound department so there's a there's a lot of inertia just within the industry to sort of you know get past the 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 thought that uh, sound is just a subset of electrics and uh, it's something that uh, you know is just is technical and not necessarily artistic um or is you know worthy of being sort of compared, judged, compared, and, and accolades uh, awarded to people who uh, who do outstanding work. Is this a product of the general ignorance of theater creators into what goes into creating a sound design for, for a play or a musical, or is this uh, a, some larger issue? Well, I mean... Like, is it, is it, could it be an issue of... I mean, I know... I know like I, most people could go and and sit on a jury for best actor. Yeah. Most people could go and sit on a jury for best costume design, even, uh, lighting design. 
Now you're getting into a bit more of, of a learned eye that you have to have. I mean, you have. I mean, obviously, it's important to have a learned eye for any scenography. But you know, you have to, to understand the subtleties. You probably should be a lighting designer or a director, someone who understands lighting. But for sound design, who goes and judges the sound design? Well, it sounds, it sounds like a person. Good job, everyone. Yeah, right. it, it it does get tricky. I mean, you know, part of the the result when sound design is done well is is that it doesn't draw attention to itself. Yeah, and and that's a you know that again is the way the human hearing system works. It's it's a subconscious taking in of information that is you know it pops up and and makes itself apparent when something is strange or something is wrong or something start has happened that's significant. So. In our modern sound reinforcement techniques and, and the tools that we get to use and stuff, it's, you can make a, a sound reinforcement design on a musical that it didn't bother the audience at all. They just kind of bought in and went, wow, that, sounded, that was great. I didn't have any complaints. So therefore, I just, wow, how about those lights? Or, you know, or that acting was amazing. And, and that's great. And that's really what we try to, to go for. Um, now... As a sound designer, I, I know what to listen to. I listen to, to mixes on shows very critically and, and um, you know, on my own shows and, and try and get it to the point where it's as, you know, um, seamless for the audience as, as possible. But uh, I can understand that, you know, someone who is just going to experience a show and if they, they're not going to think, you know, walking out like, wow, that was such a great sound design. I was totally unbothered by it. It's, you know, they're not going to think that way. So part of it is is there's some education required. Now, on the other hand, I also know that lay people, audience people, have opinions about sound. Particularly when you're a mixer and you're at the back of the house as the audience is letting out. They're going to tell you. <laughs> they're going to tell you if they heard something wrong. or the, And sometimes they'll tell you that they liked it, which is which is always nice. But, you know, they're... I, I do believe that people have opinions about about sound, so I, I think it's a little um, a little bit of a stretch to think that um, the Tony uh, educators wouldn't be able to you know I wouldn't have been exposed to enough shows and enough work to to be able to go yeah you know what that one that one was pretty good uh, and what happened with the with the elimination of the Tony because this year. It was eliminated. Yes. What was what, what was behind that decision? What was the first of all? Why? What was the answer that the that the that the academy or the the, the, the committee gave? The, Is it the, an academy or a committee? I don't even know. It's one of the two. It's a committee academy. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those. <laughs> or bento. Uh, it's one of those things. Anyways, what was the what were the time? Yeah, it, it's it's a it's a committee. Yeah. Um. Well, their their official statement when challenged was that. Um, they, the people who, who judge the the shows and and nominate shows for the awards, uh, were not educated enough in the field to to make a decision uh, on whether a particular show's design was better than another's. Uh, and in addition, they also said that they had decided that uh, the work that we do is not artistic work. And have reclassified sound as a technical craft, and therefore outside of the scope of the Tony Awards, like props or yeah, like props or, or cutting or, or wigs, or, wigs yeah. right? You know, which which is unfortunate as well. 
And uh, tell me about the collaborator collaborator party. What was the response of the industry to that uh, to that decision? Uh, well, I had I had the good fortune of being able to go down to New York for the night of the Tonys and attend uh, the collaborator party. The collaborator party was an event that was put together by uh, John Gramada, who is the designer who championed the uh, awarding of the Tony for sound in the first place. Um, in response to the um, to the elimination of the awards, and so it it was created in the spirit of you know let's not we're not going to get together and just be kind of disappointed together let's get together and have a have a good night of it and uh and so the spirit of the collaborator party was that if you anyone's invited if you're you know so there was a, an awesome mix of of stage hands and stage managers and designers and performers and musicians and you know it was it, the spirit in which the event was was uh, created was absolutely super positive, um, and the support from the from the community was was extraordinary. Um, sponsors came on board. Their goal initially was to give away a, a prize every time a Tony Award was given away. They televised it. There wasn't a big beer hall in the East Village in New York, and uh, the support was so strong that. Uh, to this day, every couple of days on the Facebook group for the collaborative party, they're still giving away prizes. They're still drawing raffle prizes. So, uh, yeah, like F Figure Fifty Three, who who makes QLab, the you know playback software that we use extensively, they were big supporters. They um, uh, USITT came on board. They they live streamed the event so that people could join in all across the world. Um, it was just it, it was a really good event that came out of kind of a crummy decision by the Tony committee, but the result of the event, um, was extremely positive and, uh, and I hope that they continue to do that every year. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now here's the difficult question, uh, maybe not so difficult for you to, a to answer, but, um, let me put it to you. I mean, obviously this is a design podcast. We've done some things that are not necessarily designed. We had an audience thing in the, in the spring, uh, but Make the case for me as a sound uh, designer, as an artist, and not as a technician. Now, I want to make sure that people understand that I think that technicians are extremely artful. I consider myself as a lighting designer an artisan more than an artist. I never, I mean, I, to have an original thought is, is a bit <laughs> difficult for me, but, you know, as designers, we're not there to necessarily have original thoughts. We're there to 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 serve the play and to tell the story and to create an environment in which the characters can are are well placed. So, make the case for me that as sound design, as as on par with sonography and lighting design and costume design. Well, I think the the easiest way to sort of imagine that is. Um, think about what would happen if we were to turn off the sound system and we were to endeavor to to do a show in a in a modern theater using modern theater techniques across all departments um, i think the first thing that you would you would hear that would be difficult is you would realize how noisy the lighting rig is <laughs> yes that's very true that's very true scrollers alone the scrollers moving lights video wall all those things that have that have fans um so from from a very basic level we we ha are kind of in a position now where where we enable other 
crafts to to do their work because we can take care of it okay we can help with that whole noisy lighting rig thing um and so once that need is there and you then you know once you have the need for reinforcement the artistry comes in in taking the unnatural phenomena of vocal reinforcement and making it feel natural and so that that artistry it's it's kind of like sculpting like when you when you take a mix you've got this raw block of like you know sound you put the faders up and and there's all the people talking and all the singing and stuff happening but in that raw state it is not a crafted mix you're like okay great everything's working now we start to take away now we start to create dynamics so we 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 choose whether we want to make make this scene or this bunch of text a little quieter so that the audience has to kind of pull in a bit right or do we want to be like ta-da right and give them a big you know button big button at the end of a song so that they go yay like that was the best that whole dance number was amazing right like we our art comes in pushing and pulling the emotional response of the audience and letting and integrating that with all the other departments and lighting is a department that we collaborate with um very closely because we have you know especially in musicals there's it's a lot of stuff that that you can do that's real fun um you know that can work dynamically with with uh lighting and uh so that's where our artistry comes in you know it's if you were to just put a bunch of mics on performers turn them on and put them into a pa system you will almost always be unsatisfied with the result so our art is in taking that raw material and finding the dynamics and the emotion within that so so the case i think that's great i think it's a terrific answer um as a lighting designer i completely understand what you're telling me uh as as far as telling the story and the way that the way that you're crafting it it's almost exactly the same thing that we do with lighting. Yeah, Control, for sure. It's on the Absolutely. full. It's going to look like crap. Absolutely. We're actually, you know, and to get to a naturalistic state takes a hell of a lot of work. Yeah. And with yeah. an unnatural set of tools, right? So that makes perfect sense. Um, one of the discussions I had with Kevin Lamont when we were discussing uh, the wars out in uh, uh, Theater Calgary, uh, they had... Oh, was it The Wars? No, I think it was Alan Stitchbury, because Kevin Lamont lit it. It was more of those two discussions. Anyways, well, the discussion was there was a problem to solve, right? There was a, and this is what design is. It's problem solving yeah. to tell a story. And uh, there's my book. Problem solving to <laughs> tell a story. I'm not sure. uh, and it's <laughs> much more complex than that, but that's okay. Um, but w- they had a discussion about that they could spend a bunch more money on making a set piece to tell, to fill in a detail that was necessary for the narrative. And during the discussion uh, with the design team, uh, the sound designer, whose name has now escaped me, I don't remember who, who designed it, um, piped up and said, hey, I could do something. And Kevin went, hey, that's a great idea. I could, I could, I could support that this way. And in that very moment, uh, sound design or the sound designer transcended uh, mere implementer and became a collaborator. Absolutely. Uh, in the team to solve those problems. And I think it's important. I think we had discussed this prior too. I, I had as a lighting designer, I've never sat in a room 
I don't think I've ever had that experience of sitting in a room discussing the play with the sound designer in the room with us. Right, the set design. We've discussed them. What, you know, what colors you're choosing. What's the what's the three what's the three dimensionality? What's the sculpture like? Um, you know, what do you envision for lighting to support that? Um, but lighting and sound collaboration really occurs in the tech week, and at least in my experience, uh, I think I think the argument is definitely in favor of having that discussion with everybody who's there. 100 percent absolutely absolutely and and that should be the goal um you know commonly my first conversations are with a director who may want to to work with me or we want to talk about what the show is going to be um and then the music director and then the production manager where we're talking about budgets and and technical stuff uh but very quickly i need to talk with all departments and it's actually a little bit different i think for a designer who does musicals and who will, will do a system design for like a roadhouse. Because one of the things that is the unifying conversation, which I have to have as a sound designer with everybody else is what do you need for ClearCom? <laughs> That's a very good point. Yeah. Now, so, <laughs> do you think, but do you think that that should be like, it seems to me after having our discussion, I feel like that should be somebody else's job. Like that should in this, be the in a perfect job utopian world. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, it would be someone else's job. But it's actually the sound department's job. So sound the sound department uh, takes care of, of intercom. Uh, we take care of program video. Essentially, uh, all the low voltage communication stuff. So electrics will still take care of like cue lights, for instance, right? Um, but the you know traditionally the sound department is taking care of the clearcom, and you know what it kind of is a drag to design those systems and it's the least glamorous part where you're like, Oh man, I got to do the line drawing for the video system. But you know, we, it, it's within our scope and, and it's, you know, the sound shops that, that supply stuff for musicals, Broadway musicals, like, you know, sound associates and mask, their infrastructure, they have inventory for all that stuff. So, we handle it. We'll we'll figure out what the what the communication needs of all the departments are, and then we'll implement we design the systems and implement them. Uh, but it does uh, get the conversation started very early because you got to talk to your you got to talk to your lighting people and be like, oh, what do you need? And and so at least you're in communication. And I mean, also we have to negotiate physical space. You know, we have to put loudspeakers. Uh, you know, for front of house, we want to make sure that there isn't some. I don't know whiz bang 3000 moving light in that same piece of physical real estate. Yeah. With all its fans blaring at a hundred percent. So <laughs> that's, that's right. I, actually, I think those go to 110. Those <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I remember, uh, uh, when I did the phantom install, I was a stagehand in Kitchener a long time ago. Ah. And, uh, was it a tour? It was the tour. It was yeah. the first phantom tour yeah. and they, uh, in Canada anyways. And they, uh, it was a week of installation. I took off school to go do it cause it was so incredibly cool. And I remember the, the main pros had so much bloody sound gear in it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was used to having, you know, production arts come in and do a whole lighting bridge downstage, but it was all sound, <laughs> all these individual, like empty unboxed speakers <laughs> and these giant Bose sound cannons, which are like giant bass, yeah. like, and, uh, it was the first time I thought this is, a, this is the most specific sound design. And it was ensuring 
that everybody's experience was the same on yeah. the tour, right? Yeah. Instead of just using house mains. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know? And this yeah. and this was at the center of the square in Kitchener. So oh, the yeah. house mains yeah. were they were Meyer. They they made the Meyer commitment. You know, after they, I think the original sound install was a Midas console, mm-hmm. and uh, I think Midas did the consult on the original cluster. And it was all custom built stacks because it was it was designed in 1978, so there was not a lot of off the shelf stuff you could put there. So it was all custom cluster. And everything right. Else. But when they replaced it, it was all UPA, yeah, yeah, one A's and all that stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. Classic um, theater loudspeaker. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, those those loudspeakers UPAs were made for to solve the problem that theater designers had, which is having compact, high quality loudspeakers that have uh, even and predictable coverage patterns, and be able to put them together. A, the simple, you know, idea of a trapezoidal shaped loudspeaker. That's a Meyer patent. Until the until the UPA, no one had come up with the idea that you can make the the rear, you know, face of the loudspeaker narrow, shorter than the front face, so that you end up with a trapezoid, and you can actually pack them next to each other, and create horizontal arrays of loudspeakers. Before they were all square boxes, so you know that type of evolution. But the UPA actually came from uh, is an evolution of a, a monitor loudspeaker, floor wedge monitor loudspeaker that John Meyer. Uh, uh, created the ultra monitor and uh and it sounded fantastic it was an excellent sounding loudspeaker and so abe jacob who is the the godfather of modern theater sound reinforcement you know uh heard that and said that's a great sounding loudspeaker can you put it in a box that's like this so that we can hang it in the air and point it at audiences and john meyer went yeah so there the upa is born mm-hmm. which is a you know very ubiquitous loudspeaker now that's awesome. I love that story. Um, so I, I, I want to get to training, but let's just go, let's talk about the union first of all. You've, uh, you're an IA member. That's correct. And when did you decide, when was it imperative that you become, did you feel a pressure to become a member of the of a IA or did you, uh, was this just a necessary uh, evolution to, to mix the shows you wanted to mix? Uh, what, what, how did you make that decision? Uh, yeah, so uh, uh, you know, my initial uh, reason for wanting to become a member of IATSE is because I wanted to mix big shows, and so those positions are are almost always union positions. You know, shows that originate on Broadway, uh, where it's very strong local one, very strong union, uh, they will go out with union crews, and so you know, most of the big theater houses are going to be. Um, IATSE crews and and so in in Canada I feel that there's a, a there's a bit of a glass ceiling as far as being a sound designer system you know for musicals and stuff in in Canada we have some really great regional theaters and and you can there's really great work happening and we have some resources and that and that's fantastic but when it comes to commercial development of larger shows that may have a life on Broadway the it it becomes very limited as far as uh, opportunities as a Canadian designer to be the designer for that show. Uh, you know, we've seen it in, in Stratford, for instance, where, you know, shows that were, are possibly going to go to Broadway. There will be American designers that will come to Stratford to design the show or their associates will come to Stratford to implement the show. Are they, uh, I'll just stop you there. Are they uh, USA members? Yeah. Uh, e- yeah, it's. I'm not as familiar with the ins and outs of the design union relationship in uh, 
in the U.S. But yeah, I believe the current state of affairs is that they are USA members. There was a bit of a shakeup between who had jurisdiction, IATSE. There was a sound design thing in IATSE for a while that Abe Jacobs championed. And, and But I think the current state of affairs is that it's, it's USA. Which makes sense from a position of having of treating sound designers as designers and not technicians. Yes, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Okay, sorry, continue. Uh, Stratford, uh, there was a glass ceiling. You were talking about the glass ceiling. Yeah, the glass ceiling. And, and I understand, it, I mean, it's disappointing that it's there, but I understand, you know, if that it's probably, you know, easier for a producer to bring in a designer from New York to that may de- develop or tech a show or do a pre-Broadway of a show here in Toronto. And then once the show moves to New York, they're able to work in their home city. Um, it, so it's yeah it's a bit it's a it's if it's a bit disappointing i wish that i wish that we had some opportunities um as canadian designers to to you know show our stuff and and uh develop shows that may move to broadway but um i think it's much the same with lighting design unfortunately as well i'm um, sure not yeah. so much but lighting yeah. design they have to pay a new york designer to be there anyways yeah so they just bring up a new york designer to design the show up here and move it down there that happens all the time or redesign yeah. the canadian design for that venue, yeah. So it does sense. And, and you know, there are there are fantastic people in New York. They really they really do have the talent pool. So it's uh, it's a hard sell. So once I got into sort of doing this work, it uh, it did become a goal. I knew that it, it if I wanted to continue to be involved on these larger productions that that, that do have you know development stuff in in Canada or or mixing shows that transfer from Broadway to do a Toronto run. Um, and to work with these designers and these design teams, um, being a mixer would be my avenue to get involved in that. And so uh, that meant um, endeavoring to become a, a union member. So, and I'm very happy about that. I'm very, I'm very grateful to be a union member. Um, I think it's very important that as people who do this type of work, as as, as stagehands, that uh, you could do it with, uh, you know, good pay and and benefits and and all that stuff and can actually make a a good life out of it because it's it's hard work and you make a lot of sacrifices being on a show when you're running a show six days a week and you're doing eight shows a week you know you make sacrifices in other parts of your life um and you dedicate uh, yourself to this work and so you know we want to it's nice to know that you get treated fairly that makes sense. Okay, uh, let's talk about design training because you went to Trevis, and I think most of the programs uh, to get really in-depth sound knowledge are all focused on recording, especially architecture uh, and listening, learning how to listen, right? Um, so how, first of all, are there programs in Canada where uh, somebody in, uh, you know, at the, at the college or university level can go and train in live sound or theater um theater composition or does that really just a a mentorship uh Uh, there are certainly you know components of programs like ryerson university um you know national theater school uh that that allow people to be exposed to some of the work that that gets done in theater sound from composition uh composition and uh playback design stuff to some of the you know, system design stuff. But I, I, 
I think there's enough scope in those programs that can whet someone's appetite because it's, it's not for everybody. Like sound is, is not for everybody. Um, and I think that there's opportunities for people to kind of get a, you know, get a foot in the door and go, Oh yeah, that, that might be for me. And, and, but beyond that, I think that mentorship plays a really strong role because I think the, the work is, it, it's very specific. And, uh, and certainly for my career path, it, it's been mostly mentorship. My studying, you know, going to post-secondary career college taught me almost nothing, like, for what I actually do in my day-to-day life. It's been uh, primarily from the generosity of, of, of mentors, um, Keith Handigord and Richard Farron. Um, you know, it's, I've been very fortunate to have those opportunities. So I try to give those opportunities back now that I have... I'm in the position that I am to, to work on stuff and work on shows. And, and, uh, and I think it's very important for people to get in the room. Like, and so I try and be very generous if, if people express an interest in seeing how this work is done, how are we utilizing the tools to do what we do? What's our process? Um, I think it's a very effective way to just say, come on in, you know, we're going to be tuning the PA at this time, you know, come in, bring your notepad, We'll talk about, you know, write down your questions. We can discuss them later. But, you know, here we're going to do the work and, and you can you can kind of get a feel for how it's done. And that usually does, you know, re- brings two responses. It was either, you know, oh, my goodness, I, I don't want to do this. <laughs> this, is not, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Or, wow, this is not what I thought it was going to be and this is completely compelling and I want to do this. So, you know, I, but I, I de- and either response is totally appropriate. Um, but I, I feel very strongly and, and try to um, support uh, people who are interested by offering mentorship opportunities. And what kind of essential training elements do you think people should get to prepare themselves for that kind of experience? Uh, is, it a, is it school? Is it a classroom kind of work? Or is there, is there a specific text you think they should have? Or is it really just uh, learning architecture and learning gear, becoming gearheads and understanding the the different components um i you know i i think if if the inter- if if a person's interest lies specifically in in theater design uh certainly training as in theater craft like stagecraft is is huge a huge asset i that's one thing i lacked when i i remember my first my very first day apprenticing with uh you know richard farron we're on the stage i think we were at uh, the berkeley street theater downstairs and uh it was a one-man show. Daniel McIver was was performing in. Daniel Brooks was directing it, and uh, a wardrobe piece had showed up, a, a sweater, which was a possible candidate for Daniel to wear in the show. And uh, and he said, "Hey, Michael, did, can you put this sweater on? Mind going on stage? I want to see what it looks like under the lights." And so I was like, "Yeah, sure," you know. And uh, and so they're saying, "Hey, can you go stage left?" And I'm like, oh, "Walking the wrong way." They're like, upst-. "I'm like, oh man, like you know, just just totally, you know." They're learning it the hard way, you know, and, and, uh, and so, you know, it, I think if you are interested in, um, in theater, it's certainly an education and in stagecraft can, this is an asset, but you know, it doesn't preclude you from doing it. Mm -hmm. What about uh, things like physics or acoustics or, uh, computer Mm. science and things like that? Is those essential skills that you, 
you learned them, I, I think. You went to sim school, but you also learned them, I think, by the, on the fly. But would it be helpful if you had done that kind of training beforehand to go, oh, I understand? Yeah, a bit. I mean, you know, physics is certainly physics, and, and all, all the work that we do is based upon the laws of physics. Um, but, you know, a lot of people get into sound because you've got an interest in music. Um, and, you know, I'm not that great at math and a lot of people aren't that great at math that do this kind of work. And, and thankfully the math that we need to do to effectively do our work is relatively simple. Um, you know, so the, the entry, the, the need for mathematical or highly technical physical, like physics training might be a bit overkill. Um, but, uh, Definitely um, a, a good understanding of computers is, is, is mandatory now in these days. And uh, the, all the tools that we use, everything's computerized. So you need to be really comfy with computers. TCP IP networking is pretty much mandatory. You need to understand, you know, network topology and, you know, cause everything, all our stuff talks to each other now and we are able to implement, um, you know, very sophisticated control systems, um, you know, using TCP IP networking. So, I mean, it's nothing more, really more complicated than setting up your, your, you know, a network in your home, just, it's like more of it, but you, that stuff, you know, it's going to be expected that you're comfortable with, um, that type of technology. Uh, well, that's great, Michael. Thank you very much for being on the title Breath. Thank you, Michael Cruz. <laughs> it was my pleasure. And that was sound designer Michael Laird speaking to me from the Tuttle Block Studios here in Toronto. Next time, really, there's going to be more from the Shaw Festival when I interview the head of design at the Shaw, Mr. William Schmuck. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to iTunes and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at the Tuttle Block CA and on Facebook.com forward slash the Tuttle Block Podcast. You can send comments and requests by email to the Tuttle at gmail.com and don't forget that if you like the show support us on patreon.com forward slash the title block podcast feel free to share this with your friends colleagues students and teachers or listen to it while you attempt to find the weird hum in the mix and remove it you know that hum right there that appeared out of nowhere when you realize it always starts when someone is making popcorn in the green room microwave during their act one break i'm michael cruz and i'll see you next time on the title block